Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this day, for the gift of life, for the gift of your word, for the gift of community, and for, gift, for the gift of your truth, which you revealed to us through the pages of sacred scripture and through the church that you instituted 2,000 years ago. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us deeper understanding, that you would help us to grow in faith, hope, and love. And tonight, as we dive into the words of the gospel, we pray that they would convict us and help us to know your love for us, but also the ways that we can grow in deeper love and deeper response to that love each and every day. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. Bless us in the ways we are distracted, worried, anxious, and remove from us anything that might be taking our focus away. Command those things out of our minds and hearts in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We lay this time at your feet. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, great to be with you tonight. We are in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Now, we've skipped ahead a little bit from where we were this past week. Uh, this past week, we were in the middle of, or at the end of, Jesus' church order discourse. Uh, the fourth of the five teaching sections he has in the Gospel of Matthew. He was up in the northern region of Galilee. Now we skip to chapter 20. Jesus has now traveled down to Judea, the southern region of, of Israel, uh, very close to Jerusalem, but he's not in Jerusalem yet. He's on the other side of the Jordan, where uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary live, where John the Baptist preached. and He's kind of in that area preparing to enter Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, for the events of Holy Week and his crucifixion. So we're leading right up to that. These are some of his final teachings. And this teaching that we're reading tonight, this section in the Gospel, only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. doesn't appear in any other Gospel. Okay? So picture Jesus then uh, in the southern region of Judea, surrounded by disciples, friends, people who know him down there, not yet over in Jerusalem, but he's giving this teaching. Um, and uh, if you've heard this before, just try and get a picture for what is being said in your mind. Act as though you've never heard it. Paint it for the first time in your mind. See if you notice anything different. So we're going to read this twice through. Okay, First time through, just get a sense for what Jesus is teaching. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. So they went off. And he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, he found others standing around and said to them, 
Why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You two go into my vineyard. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Summon the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and ending with the first. When those who had started about five o'clock came, each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the day's burden and the heat. He said to one of them in reply, My friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give this last one the same as you? Or am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Thus, the last will be first, and the first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, in a somewhat of a similar vein to our gospel last week of the uh, parable of the unforgiving servant, talking about forgiving in very difficult circumstances and the standard between the two different debts that were paid. Now, these two different amounts of time that have been worked, and yet there is an equal generosity that the landowner, uh, which is an analogy obviously for God, brings to this situation. So, now that we have uh, kind of an idea for what is being said, second time through, we always listen for a particular word or phrase that resonates with you personally. Okay, so this time we're not looking for details. We're not trying to interpret the theological meaning of this passage. Uh, we're just looking at the text and seeing, is there a, a particular detail that stands out to you? Maybe it relates to something going on in your own life. It speaks to you. It reminds you of something. It sparks a thought or a memory. Whatever that is, hold on to those particular words or details as we read the second time through. We're going to reflect on those and ask, why, God, are you having this stand out to me? What are you trying to say to me personally through this passage. All right, so let's do that the second time through. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you too go into my vineyard. Did I skip? I'm sorry. Went out of town to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. So they went off. And he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, he found others standing around and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into my vineyard. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and ending with the first. When those who had started about five o'clock came, each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, 
who bore the day's burden and the heat. He said to one of them in reply, My friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give this last one the same as you? Or am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Thus, the last will be first, and the first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look over that passage, the things that stood out to you. Reflect on those. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, uh, take a few moments. What stood out to you and why? And any questions that arose in you as we were reading this? We're going to take about the next 10 minutes or so to discuss at your tables. You're free to join a table if you would like. And uh, otherwise, uh, we'll, we'll take about the next 10 minutes to discuss. And we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and question and answer. All right, so take about the next 10 minutes. So uh, a little bit about this passage, and then we'll get into our questions and discussion and see how much we can get out of this. But, you know, I think this passage it, it speaks to kind of a, I don't know, a theme in like Western American culture and a theme that's very present in my house as well. And it kind of goes something like this. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. We did so much more, you know, like, and this is a very difficult passage, especially for the, for those of us, all of us really, who live in a very independent minded uh, culture in an independent minded country where everything is focused on personal merit, personal achievement, you earn what you get. And the gospel is not like that, you know, and God's generosity and his mercy is not like that. And so this can be one of those kind of uncomfy passages sometimes to read. Does this remind anyone of another parable? What parable? Prodigal son. prodigal son. Yes. Yeah. So the elder brother in the prodigal son. Again, <laughs> dad, it's not fair. He went and did all this stuff, but I work. You know, it's like that, you know, it's that same kind of mentality. And that God, that parable itself, the prodigal son is called the gospel within a gospel. Like it's, it's kind of at the core of what Jesus intends to convey in his message of mercy and forgiveness for all of us. And so in this passage, what we're really dealing with is like these ideas of justice, mercy, fairness, generosity, how they kind of interplay and how we understand them in terms of our own relationship with God and especially how we see other people. You know, in terms of how we compare ourselves to others, how we might be quick and, and too harsh in our judgment of others quick to, to make judgments about them. And what this passage really makes me, me, it makes me think about a lot of things, but one of the things it makes me think about is like how often are we slow to affirm and celebrate the good things that happen in the lives of others? You know, it's, it's very easy to look even at ourselves, but especially at others and not notice 99% of the things that they're doing right, well, or incredible and only notice that 1% or less that they did wrong or that they did that bothered us or irked us in a way and only see that when we look at them. And yet everyone in our family, everyone in our lives, everyone in this room, everyone in the world is, is incredible at something. How often do we tell those people that they're incredible? How often do we think that? 
And yet, how often do we look at those same people and we're quick to jump to the last thing that they did or said that irked us? And maybe we won't say it to them, but we'll say it about them to everyone else for the rest of that week or that day because we need to vent or we're irritated or whatever it is. And this, I think, it speaks to this idea of, of envy. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. And, it's, uh, and this is not me, quote, I'm quoting someone else, but it's the stupidest of all seven deadly sins because you get nothing. You get nothing from envy. Gluttony, lust, maybe even anger, sloth. I mean, you kind of get something. Envy, you get nothing. Envy is just despair at the good fortune of another. You look at the good that someone else has, and you say, it's not fair. I want that. I do good things. That person sucks. They get great things. Why? You know, it's this kind of idea where we judge the blessing of God, the mercy of God based on merit or based on our perception, like we are the arbitrator of good and evil, and that we know everyone's hearts and everyone's circumstances, and we can point at someone and say, oh, they deserve X or they do not deserve X. And that's what this is really calling to mind. This passage really puts a mirror up to that place in our hearts, that imperfect place, and makes us recognize like the reality of God's generosity. In the first reading, you will hear a very familiar passage uh, from Isaiah 55, I'll read a portion of it where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And God is proclaiming that, this is before Jesus, six or seven hundred years before Jesus, through the prophet Isaiah, reminding them that even though they're about to be totally destroyed and go into exile, and it seems like all is lost, like God is always up to something good. He's always, he always has generosity and blessing in mind, regardless of how human sin muck things up. And so it's very important for us to kind of try and see the world through the perspective of God. If you ask God for justice, what will you get? You'll get one thing. You know what it is? Hell. If you ask God for justice, you will get hell. Because we were all born into the grasp of the evil one. We're all born with the stain of original sin on us. We're all born in the dominion of the evil one. And baptism, yes, it saves us from that. But we don't earn that. That's free grace. It's unmerited. God gives it to us. The only thing that you and I can claim ownership of and write our name on and says, this is mine, I did this of my own free will and volition with no help from God, is our sin. And if God is being truly fair and truly just, then the only solution when we ask him for that is hell for everyone. Doesn't that show you how merciful and generous God is? That despite that just reality that we all deserve punishment for our sins, he took that punishment on himself. He incurs the debt and the loss of people coming to the vineyard late and says, you know what, I'm going to give you the same gift anyway. It doesn't matter if you repent or you realize the good news early in your life, late in life, the very beginning of the mission of this church, or right before the end times, you get that same unmerited gift of grace to forgive you of your sins. And isn't that an incredible thing? But we have to be honest about those places in ourselves where we still get that icky feeling of like, yeah, but like, am I like, like a little bit better than that person? You know, like just when we have that kind of sense of, holier than thou, that can creep up. And we can be quick to judge other people. 
quick to look at the person who enters the church and is hanging around in the back. And instead of saying, oh, great, another person, another person who wants to hear the good news, we look and say, hmm, I wonder what that person's up to. They look a little shady. I haven't seen them here before. That's what this wells up, I think, in us, is the reality that we have a struggle with God's generosity. And we're never going to be able to fully understand it like we heard in the first reading. It's so far above our understanding and our ways. But if we can be able to see from God's perspective a little bit, then we can be part of that blessing. Reckon that there's one detail in this passage that's very, very interesting. That in the beginning, who goes out at dawn? The landowner. And yet, in verse 8, when it was evening, the landowner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the laborers. There is a foreman. There's a person who's supposed to be in charge of the workers. It's actually his job to go and get them. And yet he himself goes out to seek those who are in need of work. God does this. He goes out. He extends his generosity. This is like in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. It's the whole theme of the Gospel of Luke where it says, I think in Luke 19.10, the, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And yet the foreman, the church officials at the time, or the church now, at that time is criticized because they are not operating with the justice of God in mind. And we now, as a church can step into that role of foreman and be able to share that generosity of God with others. But if we take ownership of that, we say, no, I'm in charge. I'll, I'll, I'll dilly out the wages. Is that a word? Dilly? Divvy. That's the word I was trying to say. Dilly word. Um, I will divvy out the wages as I see fit. Then we are going to diminish God's generosity. We're going to base it on achievement, opinion, judgment. That's not how God sees. And so this challenges us to see others as God sees, to desire that every single person know the mercy of God. And then the one final point, and then we'll open it up for questions, is, you know, at the end of this, or the end of this kind of hiring process in verse 8, where it says, why do you stand here idle all day? Because no one has hired us. I wrote like a comment early. I mean, I've had this Bible for a little while, so I have this old comment that says, come on. Like, come on, really? Nobody hired you? Like, you just think work was going to fall in your lap? But then I thought about it as I saw that comment reading this again, and I was like, well, did, didn't they work? I mean, they're, they're there for, I mean, what is this? You start at 6 a.m. at dawn, and you're there until 5 o'clock, so 11 hours. And they're painstakingly seeking work with anxiety about how they're going to feed their family, whether or not they're good enough, whether or not anyone is going to come after them and allow them to provide for the people that they love. And is that not in some way painstaking work, sweating out in the heat of the day that God wants to give his generosity to? Just because the work or the gifts look different doesn't mean that God's generosity changes. But we can be quick to jump to the conclusion like I was. Be like, oh yeah, you're standing here idle all day? Really? Are you playing video games? What are you doing? Come on, pay attention. Get to work. But no, we don't know the heart of those people. We don't know how painstaking and anxiety-inducing it was for them to wait there hour after hour and think, okay, I guess we don't get to eat tonight. And the mercy of God, the generosity of God meets them there. So even though the work is different, it doesn't mean it's any less worthy. And despite being able to work at all or putting in the most effort possible, God's generosity never changes. Any questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you?
Yes, Nina. I was curious what the significance was if there's any for the fact that like it said they grumbled as a group, but then it says in verse 13, you replied to one of them. Like kind of narrows to like Oh yeah, he does. He says to one of them in reply. Um, you know, I don't know. What what I noticed in that passage in that verse was the phrase my friend. And you know, there's one person that Jesus calls friend in the gospels. One specific person. Anyone have a guess as to who it is? Judas. The betrayer. The person who doesn't see from God's perspective. He's the only person that you can isolate and say, this is the specific person Jesus called his friend. And so when I hear friend and isolating one from the group, I hear that kind of Jesus speaking to the knowledge of like, some are not going to be able to understand this. And it's going to lead them to turn away. It's going to lead them to diminish God's generosity and only see it from a just point of view, a justice point of view. Is this fair? Is this right? Yeah. Yes. It's funny you say that because this is very a wage and money, monetarily focused mm -hmm. analogy. And uh, Judas sold Christ out for money. Yeah, and he was the one that handled the money back, right? He was the one that handled the finances for the apostles. You know, so yeah, I think there's anytime you see that phrase, my friend in a parable, it always like perks my ear to like, hmm. I mean, he knows who's there. He knows who's listening, you know? Yeah, Michael. I was going to say, so while you were talking, something else stood out to me uh, at the beginning of the day. Um, it says that it's after agreeing with them for the usual daily wage. So at the beginning of the day, they agreed on a wage. Mm -hmm. And then partway through the day, he says, I'll give you what is just. So mm. not negotiating a wage or anything. He mm -hmm. says, I'll give you what's just. And then at the end of the day, he just tells him to go to the vineyard. Yeah. So is there any kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, he leaves it to some kind of anticipation. There's, I mean, that's the genius of this parable is that he's purposefully paying the last first so the first will learn a lesson. And he doesn't specify in the beginning, this is what you're going to get paid. Just that they will. And whatever they receive will be what is just and generous in the sight of the Lord. What we are learning about this is justice to God is different than justice to us. Justice to God means generosity. Justice to us is, it's not fair, make it fair. And, and Jesus is preaching against that idea. Because the mercy of God is not fair. It's so far beyond fair that we can't even fathom it. And because it's like that, it can make all the little, you know, scrutable differences between us, the things we might criticize, seem that much more glaringly um, um, important when they're not. Yeah. Yes, Jasper. So I've heard it, uh, heard it said uh, that you can, through virtue, in, I don't know how you would say it, like increase your enjoyment of heaven. Right, like every, like the analogy was, every, every every soul in heaven is, or every person in heaven is going to be like a like a cup in the ocean where they're one hundred percent full, but you can make your cup bigger yes. through life, and mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't say that's particularly church teaching, but that has been something speculated by theologians, and some saints have talked about this. That like everyone, if you imagine your soul as a vessel, when you're in heaven, you will be full, but the size of the vessel may vary based on the virtue that you experience in life, the openness to heaven that you had in life, the ability to receive the love of God. You know? And so God will overwhelm and overflow in all of us, but how that looks for each person may be different. 
And so they could use this scripture as kind of a proof text for that and saying like, look at all of the, the vessel could be the amount of time worked. And yet the amount paid was what was full for the day, you know? So, but yeah, not an official church teaching, but I have, yeah. when we've talked about that here before, I think too. So yeah, a really interesting idea. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. Um, I have an idea about this. And if, like, if you look at the age group here, I'm obviously one of the older ones. And my daughter, our daughter was married at St. Tim's just under two years ago. And she's been the only one in the family Catholic all the way through. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of this is God, or Jesus is also saying to those of you who believe me, from the beginning, you have experienced a level of joy in your life and an ability to get through life struggles much more than someone who comes to me near near death. Mm -hmm. And so while that person is saved, you already have some of your reward here on earth. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it that way, then you're going to be not bitching about the fact that somebody comes in uh, on Easter or Christmas or someone yeah. get, gets a few extra bucks, which has nothing to do with what he's talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just something to throw out here. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to experience difficulties in your life and you have your faith, it's a lot better to have it when you're 25 than when you're, you know, 80 and you've struggled all your life and then you finally have the aha moment. Yeah. So, yeah, what you're speaking to here is it kind of it goes along with the question of like, um, OK, well, then why bother following Jesus now if I can repent later and have all the fun that I want now? You know, if God's just going to be merciful to me, you know, then why not later? You know, that's the temptation. Right. It's like but what you're speaking to is the truth that the earlier we know Jesus, the more vibrant our life is, the more that vessel in us grows to be filled by God in a more abundant way. And so when we look at other people, we, I love how you use the analogy of Easter and Christmas because Father Patrick has talked about this a lot, and this drives me crazy, when people just show up on Christmas and Easter and the, the main, the main uh, attitude of most Catholics is like, oh, I guess they're not going to come back next week, and they're just sitting in my pew and you know, taking up parking spaces. And it's like, we should be so stoked that they're here, like to welcome them, to recognize like, this is beautiful that you're here, even this much, to receive, to be filled. And yet, of all the things that they do that are incredible, of all the 99% of the things that they're doing right and good in their life, we look at the 1% and be like, you can't come the rest of the 50 days of the year? The rest of the 50 Sundays? Like, come on. Bare minimum. And we get scrupulous, scrutinous. We become like the Pharisees. We become like the foreman of the vineyards who might dish out payment differently. But the landowner is different. He is generous. He himself says, Am I not free to do as I wish with my own money, with my own love, with my own generosity? Yeah, absolutely. And it's unmerited. It's unearned. Yes? Could this be a way of, I guess, uh, the, the fact that they get the same wage, uh, and that could be like seen as salvation, mm -hmm. um, but they put in different amount of work. Mm -hmm. Could that speak to a way how we were talking about it, how, how works in a way expand that vessel that you were kind of talking about? Yes. Yeah. So when we talk as Catholics about faith and works, we talked about this many times here, which I love talking about because it's very difficult to understand sometimes, is that um, we believe, just as Protestants do, that we are saved 
by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Like salvation is not earned by our works, but works contribute to our ongoing justification and our ongoing sanctification. So in a sense, our works, they don't earn us salvation. That's just a free response to God, the faith in him that we receive in our baptism. But just like I freely offer my love to my wife on, my, on our wedding day and she in turn to me, and our relationship there is set forward, I still have to work to make that relationship good and to grow. I mean, I, I, knowing now I've been married for 10 years, looking back at my wedding day, I'm like, you had no idea what you were saying yes to, homie. Like, you know, like you, you didn't know, you know, like you said yes to the degree that you knew then, but like the amount that that has expanded, my vessel of the heart, my heart for my wife has grown in such a way that I can love her in a capacity that I didn't have the ability to at that time, just because of doing that good work in our relationship over time. It's not the good work that makes me married. It's the good work that allows me to experience a deeper sharing in that marriage. The same thing is true in our faith in Jesus. It's not our works that make us saved. It's our faith in Jesus, but our works expand our capacity for holiness and for receiving his grace. Absolutely. Yes? So, just mild devil's advocate here. Sure. Where does purgatory fit in? Because one would think that you spend less time there if you faithful for longer period. And that would be true. If you're faithful for longer and you're doing good works for longer, then what purgatory does is it's not, it's, it has no bearing on the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus merited that for us on the cross. We receive that when we go to confession. What purgatory has to do with is the temporal consequences that are due to our sins. So every sin has a consequence that ripple effects into the body of Christ. It affects the world. And so I can go to confession and say, I truly am repentant and sorry for murdering someone. And I'll be forgiven of that sin. But it doesn't change the fact that that family still mourns. And there's a consequence to that sin that I still have some attachment and association with. What purgatory does is it fixes those attachments and it restores our soul to a place where we are no longer affected by those associations with sin and we've made up for the temporal consequences for all of those sins. We can begin that work on earth by doing good works. This is where the whole practice of indulgences come, comes in. An indulgence is not something you can buy or earn your way out of purgatory. What it is is a recognition that you have done adequate enough of good works for the church to declare you are taking off some of that time in purgatory by doing these good things. So it's the church's acknowledgement of the fact of how our good works can make up for the temporal consequences of our sins. Okay, But it's not a get into heaven free card. That's not how they work. A lot of misunderstandings about those, but they're still in practice today because of the relationship between sin, forgiveness, and good works and purgatory. So is this a little more like if you're, the, if you're the person that came at 5 o'clock mm -hmm. and you believe you know you're not going to hell, but you still may be in purgatory for a more extended period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That if you, if you live your life as a total, total sinner until the very end and you repent and you're saved by virtue of your baptism through what Jesus did for you on the cross, you're going to have more time in purgatory to make up for all those things that you did leading up to that I wasn't thinking of it as a hierarchy. I was mm -hmm. thinking of it as more time in purgatory, and then you're with everyone else. 
So yes. Why, yeah. Why are we praying for those people and family members that we know we don't have a lot to work on? Why do we pray for them? Unless that prayer does some good to purge some of it. Yes, yeah, and it can. I mean, there's only three things that the church teaches about purgatory. Only three. One is that um, it is a state of purification to enter, uh, to be order, in order to be worthy of entering heaven. That purification and purging of sin is not wholly pleasant. So it's going to be like not, you know, great. It's not going to be like hell, but it's not going to be like sunshines and rainbows either. And so because of that, the third thing is we should pray for those people who are in purgatory. That's all that the church teaches about purgatory. We don't know how time works there. We don't know, you know, how that works, but we know why we have to go through it because of the temporal punishment according, uh, according to our sins, and that cannot come with us into heaven. We can have no attachment to sin, no effective sin on our soul. So purgatory essentially is the mud room when you go into the nice clean house. You're already in the house, you're going in, but you need to get washed up and ready so that you don't make the house a mess. And that's essentially what purgatory does. So if you got more mess, more time in the mud room. It's going to take a while to scrub that stuff off and get back to a state where you can where you can be ready to enter into the into the home. Yeah. Yes. I, I guess that makes me wonder: Will you know uh, if you're? Will you know you're there when you're there? Yes. Yeah. The church does teach that there there is an understanding that people in purgatory know that they are on their way to heaven, that this is a period of purification. So no one's going to end up in purgatory and be like, am I in hell? Like, where am I? Am I in a waiting room between heaven and hell? No, that doesn't exist. You know, so the catechism says that the purification in purgatory is entirely different. It uses that exact language, entirely different than the punishment in hell. So we'll know definitively where we are. There is a incredible, I don't know if I've recommended this here or not. There is an incredible episode a podcast episode, two episodes. It's a two-part of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy Akin is a uh, Catholic apologist with Catholic Answers. And he interviews this man. I think his name is Father Nathan. He's, I think he's a Dominican priest. And he has this ministry where he's been given certain gifts from the Lord to where souls in purgatory will speak to him. And he, with a prayer team, will counsel those souls through purgatory to detach from their sins in order to get to heaven. And it's crazy to hear this interview. I mean, this, I've never heard of anything like this. And apparently, he's not the only one who has this gift. Um, and it was, it was fascinating to listen to. And there's nothing theologically problematic about it. I mean, Jimmy Akin is very, very uh, reason and logic oriented in his faith and in his analysis of different things that come up. And it's like, it's mind boggling, like listening to this interview. So the first episode is an interview with him, like Jimmy Akin interviewing this guy. And the second episode is him analyzing from a theological and a reason-based perspective, how can we understand this? And it's, it's fascinating. It's really, really cool. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. What was the name of the person? The podcast is called Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, and I think the priest's name is Father Nathan. I'm not 100% sure. I listened to it a few weeks ago, so it's hard to remember. Yeah. Sorry this is a little nerdy, but the distinction between uh, the Hellfire and uh, Hades and Revelation, mm -hmm. does that at all relate to the difference between hell and purgatory? Uh, how there's more of a, uh, in the Gospels at least, talk about how people die and go into the grave. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in Revelation, the mention of damnation is much more clear. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, and in Revelation, there are some kind of visions about the, the suffering and punishments that will happen to those on earth during the time of trial. And so that is the distinction between like the suffering on earth and the suffering in heaven. 
or not in heaven, in hell. And so, um, yeah, you could, you, I mean, you could make that distinction, but it's pretty clear, I think, if you read it in context, that it's about those who remain here and go through that like thousand years of trial or whatever. Um, but all of that in Revelation is, uh, is symbolic. It's symbolic. It's mainly a story of the Christian people overcoming uh, suffering and the persecution of the Roman emperors when Rome comes and destroys the temple in the year 70. So it's not really about the end of the world. It has a lot of end of the world type symbolism to talk about that event and how we continue to recognize God is victorious over all evil, sin, and death uh, in whatever happens. So uh, yeah, if you ever find someone interpreting Revelation and calculating the day that the world will end and telling you the sequence of events, just know that they're 100% wrong immediately because that's not how the early church interpreted Revelation. They knew the genre of literature that it was and everyone knew that was about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, yes. This may seem very elementary, but we're talking about purgatory. So who really goes to hell if we have redemption options or possibilities? Yeah, those who willingly reject God. So it's not really sin-based. I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. Sin is a rejection of God. I mean, by its very definition. So venial sin is these small ways, like let's say, let's say in the relationship with my wife, a venial sin, something small, might be her and I get in an argument. It's easy to reconcile something like that. A mortal sin is that which severs our relationship with God. I cheat on my wife, hypothetically, obviously I would never do that, but if that was the case, then that, re that relationship is severed. It needs a formal reconciliation, which is why we have confession. If we die in a state where we are separated from God because of our sin, and we are not remorseful, we willingly reject God, uh, or even if we're not, like, maybe we don't have a state of mortal sin, but we just, like, God, no, I don't, I don't want to be in relationship with you. Absolutely not. I guess you could classify that as kind of like a mortal sin of blasphemy or heresy, depending on your baptismal state. But even in that case, like, God is a gentleman. He's not going to go where he's not invited. He will not force us to be in relationship with him in death, and he will not force us to be in relationship with him in life. And so he'll respect the decision we have made in life, and carry that, allow us to carry that into our death. So he does not send us either place. He declares the judgment of what we have already chosen. Yeah, Craig. One thing about this gospel for me is that there's kind of a veil over the meaning of it. Yes. Because we assume that, that all the players in this gospel are decent, honorable, honest people. Mm-hmm. But, and that's how we start out in life, right? When you go to school and you realize, okay, there's this person is doing something to become a teacher's pet. People mm -hmm. are manipulating. Uh, maybe you have a boss at work. And maybe he doesn't like do something special, but you know that he kind of has a favorite person in the office or whatever. Mm -hmm. We kind of go through life feeling that. So that turns us into being a, a negative sense and <clears throat> being streetwise more. Mm -hmm. So like in a gospel like this, I'm thinking, okay, the guy's out there at 5 o'clock. Do they realize that the vineyard owner is a softie? Mm -hmm. Like they can, they can scam them whatever they want. They'll just they'll hang out all day. Mm -hmm. they'll, open, they'll show up at 5 o'clock because he knows he's going to show up. Mm -hmm. You know, we're forced to think that way because we've been exposed to that in our regular lives. Mm -hmm. And we know that God tells a difference. We know all that. Yeah. But I'm just saying we're forced to think of it in a negative way like that sure. because of life experience. Yeah, and that's the destructive nature of sin is that it will automatically compel us to turn more towards cynicism than it will towards seeing things from a godly perspective. 
Uh, because we, we, you know, we've experienced life, you know, we know life is hard. You know, your life is not about you. You know, like we've learned these things the hard way. We've learned that no one is going to do you any favors. You know, no one is going to look at you and have the same opinion that your parents do, that you're special, you know, but God does. But life doesn't treat us that way, right? And so when we, when we uh, in a sense, we have a choice. We can surrender our perspective to God or we can surrender our perspective to the world. And if we surrender our perspective to the world, we view from that worldly perspective everything as an opportunity for cynicism and negativity. And we see the, the, those kind of areas for manipulation, people taking advantage of one another, people not being honest. And we'll see that everywhere. Uh, or that may be the reality, but we can still choose to see people as God sees them. You know, because even if people, even if that is the reality of how, of how this passage is operating, those people are still created in the image and likeness of God. They are being willed into existence on purpose by God in this moment. And God loves them just as much as he loves me and you. And so I have a choice then. I can see from that perspective and see in a more kingdom-oriented way, like, okay, how do I conform these people and my own heart more to the Lord? Or I can choose to see from a different perspective. And then what do I get? That's why I said before, like envy, envy is the stupidest of the capital sins because you get nothing. In fact, I would argue you lose far more than you would gain. You know, and even though you might make small gains and pleasure in some of the other capital sins, you, you eventually lose in all of them. But envy is it's the most ridiculous of them all because what do you get? Nothing. Jasper. So does purgatory cure, is, is it curing concupiscence or venial sin? Like are, after confession, are you cleared of your purgatory time? Uh, no, no, okay. no, you're not. So um, the analogy I use, uh, and you'll see me do this in OCIA this year, uh, I take a hammer and I nail some nails into a piece of wood. And that's when we sin. Your, your piece of wood is like the soul. The nails are the sins. When you go to confession, it takes the nails out, but the holes are still left. Purgatory is for the holes. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. And if there are also any small nails still there, the venial sins, purgatory will take care of those as well. Yeah. But it's really for the effect that sin has had on us and on the world, how we are restored back to that piece of wood that had no scratches or holes in it. Cool. Yeah. Yes. I, I, just, I like how this story isn't about like a prince or a king. It's about laborers and like the lowly people. Mm -hmm. How a lot of Christ's ministry was focused on the lowly, and even in this, like. Talks about how the last will be first, and the first will be last. I kind of like follow up Beatitudes, mm -hmm. how he speaks of the lowly in such a high way, yeah, um, and how important it was for him to illustrate that in his ministry. Yeah, yeah, and there's something there. This kind of upside down nature where Jesus is elevating here, not only in this parable but in his passage, the lowly, the worker, not the princes, not the landowners. And I wasn't intending on talking about this, but you reminded me of something in, in that, like. When we emulate God or we emulate Jesus, we can sometimes fall into the trap of like, okay, I am being generous and I am serving you. You know, and that, that very easily can go into a position of like self-assurance and pride. And I think what generosity tells us, and we see this in the example of Jesus, he didn't need to become man, but he chose to become man and be present to us. And the same thing is true of us, that the poor, they don't need our service. We need their presence. Because in their presence, we encounter Christ. 
And that is the generosity of the landowner who would come down from heaven, become man, not to sit up still on his throne and say, I will come and save you, but to be present to us, to remind us of our dignity and that when we look in the mirror, we can encounter the presence of God. When we look at one another, we can encounter the presence of God. And so a true method of emulating God's generosity is to expect and notice his presence in others and then meet that presence with those generous acts. It's not that, look at all that I have and I'm up on here in my holier-than-thou throne and I will give you poor peons who do not know Jesus the message of the good news and I will give you bread. Look how great I am. No. Jesus is there amongst you and I need to know him. And when I see him, generosity makes sense because I want to give all that I have to him, whether he's in you or in someone else. That's a proper mentality of generosity. Not, I give out of my abundance because I am so great. But it's recognizing I have a deep need for the Lord. And I'm going to go find him. And when I do, the gift makes sense. I want to close by, oh yeah, one more question. Yes. Yes, they do. Is there like the Catholic Church yeah, so there's multiple answers to that question. So is there any particular day where the church asks us to pray for the souls in purgatory? Uh, yes, every day is great because they need it. Um, I do think that if you, there are certain intentions for each day of the week in a typical week uh, in some methods of praying the rosary. For some reason, I want to say it's like Thursday or Friday or something, but I could be wrong about that. But also, um, All Saints and All Souls, particularly All Souls Day, and the entire month of November is actually devoted for praying for the souls of purgatory in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has some kind of devotion for every single month of the year. So right now, September is devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows. And so there's some kind of Catholic devotion for every month of the year. However, you don't just wait till All Souls or, or until November to pray for the souls in purgatory. It's a very common practice that when people pray the blessing over meals, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, they will end with, um, either eternal rest, rest grant unto them, O Lord, or um, may the souls of the faithfully departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. It's just a reminder at every meal to pray for those souls in purgatory. And so that can be a very easy practice that you can look up one of those two basic Catholic prayers. They're both very short on how to remember those who have died and just tack them on anytime you are saying a formal prayer, a rosary, when you're playing grace, praying grace over your meals, things like that. So, yeah. But there are particular devotions, novenas, things like that, that you can, that are, that are suited for that, but you can do that at any time. You can, at any moment, you can just say on your way home tonight, I'm going to offer a Hail Mary for the souls in purgatory. There's a really cool, where is this? In Toledo, Spain. Has anyone ever been there? It's like a little island town, a medieval town in Spain. The cathedral in Toledo, um, if you go in, there's crypts all over the ground, or like tombstones all over the ground. And above them, I don't know if you remember this, there's chains that have hats hanging. Do you remember this? And it's, it, was a, it was a kind of a legendary belief that when the twine holding that hat finally worn down and the hat fell and landed on the tomb, that meant that soul had been released from purgatory into heaven. And so it was a reminder for everyone who entered that church when they would see the hat was to pray for that soul and for the souls who, who are in purgatory. Uh, so it's really, really cool, kind of visible. It's the only church I've ever seen do that. Um, so really, really awesome reminder for us. 
Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, well, they're positioned pretty well. Yeah, so it's not just like whoever it falls on. They're directly above each tomb. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and she has a really beautiful prayer that when you pray it, it releases either a hundred or a thousand souls from purgatory. So yeah, it's something like uh, like I offer all of the sacrifices for you know from myself and you know whatever for my family for all the souls in purgatory or something. You can buy actually a little a decal to put like in your bathroom. Uh, we have one on our mirror in our upstairs bathroom. That's the prayer of St. Gertrude the Great for the souls in purgatory. Um, she's also the patron saint of cats, so if you like cats, you know. Um, yeah, her, her, uh, her convent was overrun with rats, and so she prayed for uh, deliverance, and God sent cats. So um, there you go. Uh, I found this reflection in one of my commentaries. I thought it was very beautifully written, uh, and so I wanted to read this as we close. Uh, so as we're, as we're thinking about this passage this week and reflecting on it, um, this person is commenting um, that in this passage, God is telling us this. I am your master and your judge. You are not mine. I measure you. You do not measure me. I'm God and you are not. My essence is love, not justice. I am much more than justice, though, not less. I am good to all, but I am good to different people in different ways. My love does not follow mathematical laws. I am not an equation. I am not in love with equality. I am in love with you. Stop falling in love with equality and fall in love with me. You are right that life is not fair. Life is not just. If you mean your justice, mathematical justice, equal justice, goodness that is measured out carefully by quantity and deservingness, rather than goodness that is flung out wildly in love and joy. My justice is not a great equation, but a great story. It is a work of art, not a work of technology. I'm an artist, not an engineer. I'm a lover, not a lawyer. With me, justice is not contrasted to love. My justice is my love. It is not just justice, but love justice. My love justice is poetic, not prosaic, passionate, not pedestrian. Do you complain about that? Do you want your God to be a calculator instead of a creator? A preacher instead of a poet? A scientist instead of a singer? I am wild, not tame. I do not limit my love by justice. I do not limit my love by anything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, as we look at ourselves and others this week and reflect on this passage, help us to realize you do not limit your love, your generosity, your mercy, your goodness, your blessing by anything. Help us to see ourselves and others from that divine perspective, especially in the ways or with the people it is most difficult. We praise you, Jesus, for this night, this community, and in all the ways that you continue to bless us, especially those that go unrecognized and unthanked. And we ask for the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we go throughout this week, seeking to be generous and to see others with the generosity of her Son as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.